You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Jesus. Amen. So coming off 
of the incredible chapter 15 study of the resurrection, Paul now instantly, if you will, decelerates and lands right in something practical, giving. About the first third of chapter 16 deals with the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. The collection had been going on for about a year. Jerusalem was likely not only hard hit by the famine, but also it was a city that was poor for other reasons. Christians especially would have struggled because upon conversion, many of them likely would have lost their jobs and even lost their families. So they would have no support structure at all. Jerusalem was often descended upon by pilgrims coming into the various celebrations. There would be no work for them, and someone would have to pay for their food and board. It is apparent that there were wealthy non-residents, non-resident Jews who lived throughout the Roman Empire, who faithfully contributed so that these celebrations could occur. They would send money ahead of time to help defray the costs of some of their brethren coming to the city of Jerusalem for the various feasts. The second section of this chapter deals with Paul's plans for travel. He details requirements for some of his helpers if they were to come to Corinth, to taking care of Timothy to make sure his needs are met, and for the upcoming travel to him, said Paul, to back to me. The next section has some concluding instructions about Paulus remaining alert and acting like men, being loving. I like that. The next those two. He then encourages the Corinthians to remember that they are in subjection to those who have taken the position of overseers and that they should lovingly be accountable for them. We'll talk about that as well. <coughs> the final section is greetings from the other churches and from Paul himself. This is an extremely practical chapter, and it will take a bit of time to get through all of it. So, the first verse, he, he's coming off of the resurrection and all that encouraging the, the, the Corinthians to um, be about in the work of the Lord, be loving, be, be, be hard workers. And now he says, now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. In the first century church, there was great poverty. Indeed, the Roman Empire had pockets of riches and pockets of poverty, just like anywhere else any time in history. To exacerbate the difficulties in the huge city of Jerusalem, the local area had struggled with a severe famine that was actually predicted by Agabus in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, where he says, one of them, the scripture says, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. The reign of Claudius was between 41 AD and 54 AD. And since the first and since first Corinthians was written in about 55 AD, the effects of that famine were certainly, most certainly, still being felt. <laughs> Paul had apparently instructed the churches the same information to the churches in Galatia to be beyond uh, their on their best behavior and working for the collection of the saints in Jerusalem. He said in Romans. 15, 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 11, 27 through 30. Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had needs, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. 
And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now I want you to notice something here. The very first time we see the taking care of one another was a, a sort of communalism where they gave everything into the hands of the apostles. Now I want you to remember that the scripture doesn't say that's a good idea. It just tells us that it happened. In this section, it's clear that what they're doing is they're looking at what they've got, what it takes to take care of their families, what it takes to maintain their local church and the needs in their local area, and then beyond that, what can we send to Jerusalem? That's a completely different way of doing things. And I would posit that some of the family, and as I read commentator after commentator, we came to some of the same conclusions, some of the problems with this communism, I have no other word for it, where things were put into, into common and then distributed. That is not the way God intended for us to do things. We are to take care of one another. I don't, I'm, it was never intended for me to send my money into Cooper Community Church to take care of you. I, some of it, yes, for the weakest fund, for the melons, for people who are hurting. But if God puts it on my heart, through His Word, by His Spirit, that one of you is hurting and you need money, He doesn't want me to, to walk up to somebody else and say, You know, man, it's hurting. That's the very definition of theft. What he wants is for me to share out of my ability. So we're going to look at some of that as we go through this first chapter, uh, chapter 16. So then in verse 2 Corinthians 8, 1-5, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has given, been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So this collection for the saints of Jerusalem was something that the Corinthians already knew about. Later in the same year that first, the first Corinthians was written, Paul would write second Corinthians as a follow-up to the severe letter once he heard that things were straightening out in that church. In that letter, as we saw just a moment ago, Paul was still working on a collection of 2 Corinthians 8 um, for Jerusalem and reminding the Corinthians of the liberality of those in Macedonia. He speaks not with the tone of command, but rather with an urging out of love that the Corinthians, for the Corinthians, to finish their collection for the saints of Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 8, 6 through 8. He says, so we urge Titus, that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work of wealth, as well as Corinthians. But just as you abound in everything in faith, and in utterance, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love that inspired you, you see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Doesn't it show love to help others? Especially if you do it cheerfully, gladly, delightedly, wantingly. It is this one. You've decided that someone needs your help. God has put it upon your heart, and out of your ability, you help them. That's a blessing both ways every time. And it's it's a wondrous thing that God has done to draw His people together so that they they maintain and help one another. This I don't know, at least not in my Shorter than life here, you know, 50 or so years of working, I've been here around 60, but 
Um, I worked since I was eight. Actually, had my first job at seven. Actually, I had to get a social security so I could go to work at seven. You know why? So long as could get his cat. Okay, the NSA is listening. But it's a, it's a wondrous thing to be able to take care of them, to help them, um, especially out of love, not out of compulsion. And that's what Paul's saying here, the sincerity of their love also. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem when this happened? We'll, we'll probably talk about that more. But when this group came and presented the gifts from churches and people all over Asia who came who wanted to help. Now, also, the word would have gotten back to the church in Jerusalem, which was probably primarily those of the Jewish folks. The Gentiles had sent them to help them. That was unprecedented in those days. Unprecedented. Unbelievable. It would have been a demonstration of love on the first order. The first order. So he said, I'm not speaking this as a command, but it's proving to the earnestness of others, sincerity, your love also. So the first verse, we start out now concerning the collection. Any questions or comments about that? On the first day of every week, each one of you was to put aside and say, as he may prosper, so that no collection will be made when I come. This verse, typical of Paul, is filled with doctrine. There are several premises here. First, there's a specific day to put aside funds for the support of the church, and then it's done on the first day. This is the day the church will begin to worship. Second, this is not to be done corporately, but individually. Each person is to put aside some and save for the maintenance of their local church and the saints, and then as we'll see throughout this entire section, looking beyond for those who have been elsewhere. <laughs> Third, there's a proportion and that is, as one is prospering, you're not going to see the word tithe in the New Testament. You're not going to see a number. This implies math. Each person on the first day of the week, having previously ascertained what they can effectively set aside for the maintenance of the church and for other helpful purposes for different saints, for non-saints, uh, folks that are in need in, our, in the community, is to put money in savings, likely at home, for the use of the church. Now this particular collection was a special one for the saints in Jerusalem, as we will see in verse 3. But the principle applies across the concept of giving. Christians, looking at the very first portion of this verse on the first day of the week, Christians had come to worship on the first day, not denying the Sabbath or changing it, but rather simply recognizing that God had given to them salvation on the first day, the day Jesus rose from the dead. On that day, on that day, Christ spent the entire day ministering to the disciples in various ways. He appeared to Mary and throughout the day to the other apostles. He corrected the two on the road to Emmaus, and then he met with the eleven disciples in the upper room minus son minus Thomas. That would have been Sunday, April 9, 3080. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. John 20, verse 19. So, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. While they were telling these things, while they were telling these things, he himself, Jesus the Lord Jesus himself, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened. 
and thought that they were seeing the Spirit. And he said to them, Why are you frightened? Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have ordered a lot of actors. That one's without a context, but shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. I'll get you the verse next week. Copy and paste doesn't always work well. On the following Sunday, this is the following Sunday, the resurrection, they were meeting again, and Thomas was there who had been absent the week before. Christ appeared to them with one of the main purposes being to dispel Thomas's doubt. So it is Sunday, April 16th, after sunset. John 20, 26 through 28. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas said with them, Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, reach here your hand, put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Then, 58 days later, on the other Sunday in May, May 28, 30 AD, which would have probably been Memorial Day. No, that's, well, that's the Monday following, right? No, excuse me. On that day, on that Sunday, Peter preaches the famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, 2 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. There are numerous scriptures that refer to the first day of the week as the day that believers gathered subsequent to the resurrection. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bed, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day and prolonged his message till midnight. That's that famous message where Eutychus coughed and fell out and Paul raised him back from the dead. That was a snore. It was kind of like sound effects. Okay. John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. John chapter 20, verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas said with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. Revelation 1.10. This is the first time that we see the actual title of the day given by one of the apostles. <laughs> Revelation 1.10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So that's the first pause here. It's the first day of the week that the church began worshiping. The day of the resurrection, to commemorate the resurrection. Now, there's no reference to tithing or keeping the Sabbath in the New Testament. In fact, the Romans, Paul, in Romans, Paul makes certain that the believers there understand that the keeping of the day is only important that a day be kept. It's only important that a day be kept, a day set aside for the worship of the Lord. What day it is is up to the keeper of the day. Now, that implies getting together with others and agreeing on a day. Now, quite frankly, it's been agreed upon throughout the last 200, 20 centuries that the day is Sunday for most of Christendom. Romans 14, 5 through 6. One person, Paul says, regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. In Colossians, 
Paul encouraged the church there not to judge one another regarding food, drink, the yearly festivals, the monthly new moons, or the weekly Sabbath days. What is important is the substance, which is Christ himself, and not the shadow, which is the observances that we have for commemorating things. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul says, There is therefore, excuse me, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come when the substance belongs to Christ. Clearly, the New Testament change towards worshiping on the first day of the week is not a problem in any respect. If the Seventh-day Adventists want to worship on Sunday, we should defend their right to do so in keeping with this biblical concept. It is clear from both scripture and from history that the first day of worship became the norm from the New Testament time forward. Now, Christians adopted for the designation of their day of worship were the Lord's Day. Evidences in the first and second century are clear that the church met on Sunday. Now, these cannot be used. I'm going to read some. I'm going to show you some. But these cannot be used as scriptural reference because they are not canonical. But they are historical. From a historical perspective, they are instructive. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I realize I put way more into it than was necessary. So in the epistle of Ignatius to the Magnesians, which is around 110 AD, he says, Do not be deceived by strange doctors or antiquated myths, for they are worthless. For if we continue to live in accordance with Judaism, we admit that we have not received grace. For the most godly prophets live in accordance with Christ Jesus. This is why they were persecuted, being inspired as they were by his grace, in order that those who are disobedient might be fully convinced that there is one God who revealed himself through Jesus Christ, his Son, and who is his word, which came forth from silence, who in every respect pleased him who sent him. If then those who had lived in antiquated practices came to newness of hope, no longer keeping Sabbath, but living in accordance with the Lord's day, on which our life arose through him and his death were some denied, the mystery through which we came to believe, and because of which we patiently endured, in order that we might be found to be disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop there. Ignatius was clearly a student of Paul and believed in gigantic sentences. With lots of commas and colons and semicolons and etc. So I'm not going to read that entire thing. But the point was, in the first, the very beginning of the second century, they actually looked at the fact that worship on Sunday was included in part of the statement that they had issued Judaism. The, the, epistle, epistle, the epistle of Barnabas to King, 138 AD, he says, finally, he says to them, I cannot bear your moons and Sabbaths. You see what he means. It is not the present Sabbath that are acceptable to me, but the one that I have made. On that Sabbath, after I have set everything at rest, I will create the beginning of an eighth day, which is the beginning of another world. This is why we spend the eighth day in celebration, the day in which Jesus both arose from the dead and after appearing again, ascended into heaven. Remember, John's the first mention or the first use of the word, the Lord's day. The didact or the teaching of the twelve apostles around 70 AD, on the Lord's day, on the Lord's own day, Gather together and break bread and give thanks. After having confessed your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Then Irenaeus, Bishop of um, Lyons, circa around 178 AD, the duty of celebrating the mystery of the resurrection of our Lord may be done only on the day of the Lord, making reference to what John said, that he was in the Spirit on the first day. <laughs> the first apology of Justin, chapter 67, this would have been. Uh, he, he was around 100 to 165 AD. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gathered together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. <laughs> Sunday school will be four hours this morning. 
as long as time you make uh, images scowling, so it won't be. Eusebius in Classical History, Book 3, Chapter 27, fourth century, all Ebionites, the Ebionites believed in most of the truth, but they didn't believe in the virgin birth of Christ. So that makes the heretics silent. But nevertheless, the Ebionites cherished low and mean opinions of Christ, but they considered him a plain and common man, justified only by his advances in virtue, and that he was born of the Virgin Mary by natural generation, that's what they taught. With them, the observance of the law was altogether necessary as if they could not be saved only by faith in Christ and a corresponding life. These indeed thought on the one hand that all of the epistles of the apostles ought to be rejected, calling him an apostate from the law, but on the other, only using the gospel according to Hebrews. They assume others of little value. They also observe the Sabbath and other disciplines of the Jews, just like them. But on the other hand, they also celebrate the Lord's Day, very much like us, in commemoration of the resurrection. It's interesting when history, as kind of an afterthought, acknowledges what is a common practice. So, they did both things, I guess. Uh, classical history, again, he says, the churches throughout the rest of the world observe the practice that has prevailed from apostolic tradition until the present time, so that it would not be proper to turn about that on any other than the day of the resurrection of our Savior. And then Origen against Celsus, who contra-tells us a heretic that he wrote against in the third century. If it be objected to us on this subject that we ourselves are accustomed to observe certain days, as for example the Lord's Day, Preparation to pass over the Pentecost. I have to answer that to the perfect Christian who has ever in his thoughts, words, and deeds serving his natural Lord, God, the Word, all his days are the Lord's. So, Origen, in confuting, refuting Celsus, reminds his listeners that the Lord's Day is when Christians speak and that the true Christian celebrates everything as the Lord's Day. Finally, so, and these are just some of the historical aspects, there were quite a few more, but it's unnecessary to be a dead horse. The scripture talks about the Lord's Day, and the church has celebrated as commemoration of the most important event in the history of the universe, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, again, no amount is mentioned, but rather the statement that one should put aside as he has been prospered. So the gift that these Corinthians were encouraged to raise was something that had been going on. This is in 55, 56 AD. 55 AD. So the Lord had resurrected what, 25 years before that. So this is been, these kinds of things have been established and been going on. Paul reminds him, he says, no amount is meant be, we are to be reminded that no amount is mentioned, but rather the statement that one should put aside as he is prospered. So the gift must be from a heart and in keeping with one's ability. It would be helpful to the church, though, that each believer think through what they can do, do as much as they can, and regularly set aside that amount for the maintenance of the church and the saints. So Thomas doesn't have to guess all the time. You realize there's no getting this. So, interesting first verse, or interesting second verse. On the first day, any questions or comments about this verse 2? Verse 3. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them a pledge to carry your gift to Jerusalem. This is remarkable. This gift is not going to be placed inside a big king as a gift from the churches of Jesus Christ. There was going to be specificity. Everybody who contributed, whether it was from Macedonia, Acacia, Achaia, whether it was from Corinth, whether it was from Ephesus, no matter where it was coming from, Galatia, Iconium, all of the individual churches that committed would have had letters 
having the rain on the word, contributing, contributing without letters from their churches indicating their portion to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Paul always kept these kinds of things local in order for the collection and subsequent distribution of the funds to remain completely open and above board. Paul instructed the church in Corinth to choose their own representatives to deliver the money to Jerusalem. So it would be like we were sending money to some saints in Seattle. And we would, we would actually send the money in our own container with our own delivery people. Sent, sanctioned by us so that they would know where it came from. Not so they would be famous, but they would know the individual bodies of the leaders were loving them with, with help from a distance. He was sending the letters of recommendation from himself. It is possible that the letters would actually be from the Corinthian church, but it's most likely that Paul himself would send the letters with those chosen to take the money. Paul had reinstigated this, this collection. He would never touch the money. The Corinthians would set aside the individual. They would keep it in their homes until they delivered it to the church. When it was time to send it to Jerusalem, men of their own children, of their own choosing, were taken. Scrupulous honesty would be maintained and complete transparency. We can take a page out of this book for sure, criticizing the way money is handled today and teaching how it should properly be handled. You can't have too much transparency, can you? Not a chance. This is, this is a marvelous way. Men of their own choosing, sent with letters of commendation from Paul, and most likely also from the church. It would have been a clear, it would have been, what they say, the chain of evidence would have been clearly compelled, all the way from Corinth, up around the top, and all the way back down across the Mediterranean and into Jerusalem. Any questions about money handling? <laughs> and I'm grateful we send that way here in this body of the church. The elders have, have no say in the money. We, we, um, the, the deacons take care of it, the stewards take care of it, the body takes care of it, and that's how it should be. Yeah. switch. Um, I think it hasn't switched, Manny. I think if, if Cooper Community Church discovered that one of the churches in Coeur d'Alene, the leading church, was in dire straits, and the Lord moved us to give to them, we, we can still do that today. But we can also give to ministry missionaries. Um, I think that's part of the call in Matthew chapter 28, going to all the world and disciples, teaching this one. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and that home church will actually support the satellite church until it can get its own feet. So that would be a similar method. But I have no doubt that if we heard if the community church heard of a dire need somewhere in Africa or a church, not just missionaries, but a church, and God put it on our hearts, there's nothing stopping us from from as a body deciding to send that money. Now today we would send it by Western Union probably. But it would be interesting. It's an interesting concept. So no, it's, it's not changed. It's just the focus might be different. Yeah, I haven't even not lately. Other than what Ron just pointed out, satellite churches created. Verse four. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And then he goes too far. The general sense of this verse is that if the contribution amount was worthwhile, Paul would accompany its delivery to Jerusalem. Let's see what 
wait until that. He had been encouraging the disciples of the churches numerous times to give out of their hearts and amount to them and meet the needs of those in Jerusalem who were in such dire straits. Now, as an aside, it would probably be more difficult in those days, but it wouldn't be that hard to have a contact with the Jerusalem church who could say to you, oh yeah, and, and get some kind of an idea of just how dire the need was in, in, in numbers, so that you could. Well, you, you can say to yourselves that different churches, well, they all have this amount, and this is the amount they probably need, and we can cover that. There would be nothing wrong with actually being that mathematical about it. And I don't know that they didn't. But Paul says, if it is fitting, he's talking about the amount, um, the, the amount that would meet the needs of those that are, who are in Jerusalem, who are in such dire straits. The word fitting is a translation of the Greek word axios, which means something of value, worthy. A good cause. It refers back to verse 3, likely the word gift, which implies that he is planning for their gift to Jerusalem to be generous and to be sufficient. Sufficient. It means, uh, it refers to a balanced scale, operating by offsetting weights. It's actually a, an accounting term as well. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that. The early church was characterized by what could be called rank generosity. Rank generosity. They took care of one another. They did not look to any government to do this. They did it themselves. They reached out to those who had needs and they were characterized by sacrificial love. In 125 AD, an Athenian named Aristides wrote of the Christians of this time. Here's what he said He said, They walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. He that hath distribute it liberally to him that hath not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he were their own brother. For they call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. But when one of their poor passes away from the world, and any of them see him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is in prison or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may, he may be delivered, they deliver him. And that costs, by the way. And if there is a man among them that is poor and needy, and they have not among them an abundance of necessities, now get this, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. That's love. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat for two days so that I can send the food I would consume to people who need it more than me. In the late 2nd, early 3rd century, the Christian author Tertullian wrote about the Christians of that time. He said, though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money as a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, if he likes, he each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure, and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion. All is voluntary. These gifts are not spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people. To supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means of parents, and old persons can find now to now to the house such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any of the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons, for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become nurses, nurses of their confession. And then uh, it sh this should be the testimony of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ: people who give and give again and grudge not to give, but thrive on it and love doing it. The sum of the section, this little, if you will call it, a single section, verses 1 through 4, is that the collections were normal in order to help others. They were to be part of the regular giving of the church. Some of that giving would be for the maintenance of a local church, and some would be used for helping those who had needs. 
in the church, outside of the church. It was to be regular, planned, and mathematically doable. It is important to remember that one of the first things a believer is to do is to take care of his own. To take care of his own. Otherwise, he is worse than an infidel, according to verse 70. Um, tithing is not mentioned. The New Testament stresses giving as God directs. But all the Old Testament, although the Old Testament has a number, what is that number everybody talks about? What percent? That is, and you know this, but that implies that they don't read the whole Old Testament. Because when you look at the greenings and the, the temple gifts and all the other gifts that are mentioned, the gift, the wave offerings and all the things that are required, it ended up being between 25 and anyone that we talked to, between 25 and 33 percent of their income was actually given. So much, if you will, I might posit this, of what was done in the Old Testament, most of it, I would say, was also out of the heart. They had a number for taking care of the temple. But the rest of it had to come from people who made the decision to do what was right. So, although the Old Testament had a number, it was something along the lines of 25 to 33% was all added up. The New Testament stresses the heart, cheerfulness, and willingness. That is, not the, that is not to say that thoughtful Christians can't do the math and realize what it takes to sustain a local church, provide for those who have needs, and fix in their minds and hearts a willingness to give that which will meet those needs and beyond. Always remembering that our first responsibility is to our own. And so the man who sacrifices his family's needs to give to someone else is not doing the work of the Lord. He's doing the work of his pride. He needs to take care of his own first. Don't starve your children to feed Africa. Figure out a way to do both. Not starve your children. Figure out a way to starve your children and feed Africa. That's not what I meant. Figure out a way to feed both your children and Africa. That's what God's calling you to send them from. I think it was part of the church in the very beginning. In one place, strangers, and you're, you're saying that implies unbelievers. Yes, I think it does. I think it does. I think the church has always had a heart. One of the most. Yeah, I suppose if you look at it from pure math, yes, I'd have to say it is above and beyond. We take care of ourselves, our families, we take care of our local church and those who have needs, we take care of the distant church and those who have needs, and then beyond that, we take care of um, strangers. And what, it's unfortunate that it would be this way, I think it's fortunate, I am really thought that through this morning, but it's a testimony when you help someone who's not able to believe it's a testimony to them. And people aren't dumb. They know that, that Christians take care of one another. And when you help someone else out who's not a believer, that's not lost. And that's not the why we should do it. But it's, it's, a, it's a fringe evangelistic benefit. Evangelistic benefit. So I think it's always been with the church. I don't see it categorized necessarily, but I think it's always been with the principles in there. 
because it talks about strangers in this for, for, it's in Hebrews, Jim will get to this in about 2025, where it talks about, is it in Hebrews, we're talking about taking care of strangers, or you, you, maybe you don't know you might have entertained angels? That's the one. Yeah, so, not that we go. No, it's, you're so busy coming for, with things coming out of your heart that you don't think that far ahead. You just know you have money to do it, and the ability to help you when you want to, when God directs you to so fixing our minds, our hearts, and hearts of willingness to give that which we those things and beyond. Verse 5. Are there any questions about verse 4? Thank you. Verse 5. Now he says, now we're going to talk about itineraries and random alleys and planning and, and driving and interesting stuff like that. Well, I had a random alley from decades ago that I still use. I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. I can see him saying, for I am going through Macedonia. Friend, listen to me. Here Paul details some of his plans, and it appears that the Corinthians were unaware that he was going to go to Macedonia before he came there. So he stresses that. Remember in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul remarks about some Corinthians who were saying he wasn't even going to come to Corinth at all. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, now, some have been arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Here he puts that to rest. He had to finish his work in Ephesus first, then he had to go to Macedonia. He had a plan, and he was letting the Corinthians know that the plan was somewhat altered. What finally transpired was that Paul went from Ephesus up through Philippi, Thessalonica, and then on down to Corinth, and then returned back up through Macedonia, and back down across Asia, crossing the Mediterranean, and eventually ended up back in Jerusalem. And I, I did some, some research on it. This, this missionary journey covered about 2,500 miles on foot in inclement weather with roving bands of bandits in an empire that had declared Christianity an outlaw What could go on? So he went up, and you kind of see across Asos and Troas, and then up to Philippi, and then to Thessalonica, down to Corinth, back up to Thessalonica. Maybe I should get this. And there he is, and then down this way, and back across the Mediterranean to Tyre, Caesarea, and back to Jerusalem. So, this was no simple undertaking by car to go to Billings for a day. It was a commitment of unbelievable um, dedication. And when the money was taken to Jerusalem, don't you think they knew that those folks came from? Way over they came from Oklahoma on foot. No, farther than that. They came no that's how they have so like fourteen hundred miles, fourteen hundred forty one miles. So they came from Duluth, Chicago, or maybe a little beyond that, on foot. And it took them months to do this. God wants us to take care of each other. He wants us to take care of ourselves. But he also wants us to recognize that he is the ultimate caretaker. He is the one that prospers us, and when he does, he does it for so many reasons that sometimes don't become evident to us until later when he puts his thought upon our heart. I remember, and I think I've told this story before, I remember one time when, I believe God speaks through his word. I don't hear voices out of the closet. My dog told me if I do, not to listen to them. I don't hear, but what I do hear is um, impressions and concepts through scripture. We already take care of one another. Tim and I were both setting in a, a, a time. We had saved up what to us was quite a bit of money to purchase a car. 
And um, we were both moved by God at different times on the same day to give that money to someone who needed it. We really believe it. Still, we know today it was true, but we didn't for sure at the time who needed it more than us. So we did. And two days later, God gave us a car. What a coincidence! That was that was a real a real encouragement. And the person who got the money it wasn't for to us it was a lot. To them it was probably a fair amount. To to George Soros, it was a I lost that in my pocket. But nevertheless, it was something God moved us to do. He used it in their life. He used it in our lives. And he showed us his power, which we don't have to have it shown to us. It's dead, it's detailed in the scripture. But it was delightful to see him working that way. He worked in that person's life. He worked in our life. And that's why I say this concept that Paul is detailing here, this giving, it is a bonding of the giver and the receiver. It's a, it's a love bonding of the giver and the receiver. The person who needs and the person who has to help. And it's, it's not just so that bills can be paid and groceries can be bought. It's so that hearts can be made together. That's what he's looking for. That's what God wants in his church. Is that our hearts can be together. Father, thank you that you have demonstrated this in the most incredible way possible by giving your son to people who deserve instant death and eternities in hell. You gave what the giving was to our way of thinking, not in the world, but it was in your great economy. The thing that you did, that you did to draw us to yourself, to sovereignly bring us into the, to the kingdom of God, and we today thank you for that again and again. We recognize that there is no, no worth here for that, but you have done, and therefore it is your glory. And we want to give you the glory today. We ask you that you would make us people of knitting hearts together the way you have prescribed in your scripture, by giving and receiving. Let the givers and the receivers both be blessed. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.